Uh, I read a story uh, a number of years ago. This was uh, back when I was a kid. I think it was in Reader's Digest about a man who had just taken a first responder course. Uh, and he was uh, very excited about these new skills that he had learned, and he was uh, very uh, anxious to try them out. So as he was uh, going about his days, he was always watching for a situation where he might be able to put these new skills to use. Well, it wasn't very long after he got an opportunity to do just that. He came across uh, a car accident, and so he immediately pulled over and got out of his car and rushed to the scene, and by the time he got there, there was already a few people who had uh, gotten there before him, and they were trying to help the person who was uh, in one of these cars, and he, he rushed over there and kind of pushed him aside and said, guys, guys, I, I'm a first responder. I've got this. I can take care of this. And they, of course, kind of obligingly stepped out of the way. They're not going to fight with this man to, to help the people in the car, but, but one of them kind of commented in sort of a dry voice, okay, but when you get to the part about calling a doctor, I'm right here. See, some of us get really excited when we learn something new. We've got this new knowledge, new understanding. We want to put it to practice. We feel good about it. And, but in our zeal, it's possible to make some mistakes along the way, right? It's easy for us to take really good, solid knowledge that's, that's really useful for life and, and to apply it in a way that is actually really destructive. So I'm calling this uh, sermon, When Good Doctrine Destroys the Church. And uh, that's not meant to be, you know, eyebrow raising and things like that. But that's what's happening in the church here. See, some of the people have this really important theological truth that they're hanging on to. And yet they're applying it in the wrong way. So that it's actually destroying Christians. It's taking them down a road and bringing them back to worshiping a false god. It's, it's removing them from their connection to Christ and from their connection to God. So it's really good doctrine. It's a very important piece of doctrine that we need to hold to and to understand. And yet it's being used in a way, applied in a way that's destructive uh, to the church. We're continuing this morning in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the gospel for a messy church. And as we read this letter, I, I hope you're getting a sense that, that there's a lot of stuff that's going on in this church that's really messed up. It's confused. It's, it's uh, messy. It's just a, it's a hard situation. There, there are lots of people here who are in all sorts of situations that are destructive and that are harmful. Some of these people have very difficult pasts, and, and those pasts are coming up and, and affecting them in the present as well. Some of them are really arrogant. Some of them are really proud. And some of them feel like they're stuck. This might make me a little bit odd, but I actually find a lot of comfort in the book of 1 Corinthians because I feel like we deal with a lot of the same issues today. And some of us are in situations that are very harmful, that are very destructive. Some of us have very difficult pasts, and those pasts come and affect us into the present today. Some of us are proud and arrogant. Some of us feel like we're stuck. But the good news in reading a book like this is that that's not the end of the story. Yes, there's a lot of messed up stuff going on. There's a lot of hurtful, destructive things. There's a lot of darkness, but that's not the end of the story. This messy church receives good news from Paul. See, Paul is writing to help them through these difficult things so that they can experience what Jesus calls abundant life or life to the full. So that's why we're uh, reading this book together this fall. Uh, so let's continue on the journey this morning. Uh, today we're in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. You heard it from the, the message uh, paraphrase earlier, and now we'll get into the text uh, this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. This would be a good time to turn there if you haven't already. And if you're using a pew Bible, it's found on page 1133. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
We're going to look at this in two parts. First, Paul is going to address their knowledge, and then he's going to address their application of that knowledge. So we'll see it in in two parts this morning. The first thing we're looking at is uh, Paul's assessment of their knowledge. And what he's going to say is that their knowledge is sound, at least for the most part. Now, Paul's already addressed a bunch of issues in the church in Corinth, and today he's addressing another one of these messy issues. It's food sacrifice to idols. So let's look at how he addresses this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll start in verse 1. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now, the issue, he brings it up right at the beginning, it's about food sacrifice to idols. But before he can address that issue, he has to offer a bit of a corrective so that their mindset will shift before you can even address the topic at hand. Now, he's probably quoting them in the first part of verse 1. Uh, we all possess knowledge. That's probably what they had written to him on this particular issue. Uh, they're, they're writing letters back and forth with Paul, trying to understand things. And, and they have this phrase, we all possess knowledge. In other words, when it comes to these, uh, these uh, food sacrifice to idols, when it comes to that, they are basing their response to it on their knowledge. We possess knowledge that sees through this idolatry, these other so-called gods, and so we can eat this food without it being a problem for us at all. But knowledge can be a pretty tricky thing. It's not enough to just know something by itself, because knowledge has a tendency to bring with it arrogance. This is a trademark of college uh, freshmen and sophomores in particular. I I remember uh, with shame being a college student uh, studying theology and looking down my nose at those that I felt did not have the theological sophistication that I had. So I remember in particular with, again, great shame, uh, going with a friend uh, to his house for Easter weekend. Me and another uh, theology student friend of mine were invited actually to his house in Grand Rapids. So this is a familiar uh, area for you guys. Uh, and we were invited over for Easter because uh, the two of us had been, um, we lived far away from Chicago. We wouldn't be able to get a chance to go home and, and he didn't want to uh, leave us on, uh, on campus. Uh, for all of Easter weekend. So he very graciously invited us over to his home. We had a great uh, Easter weekend together. But uh, on on Friday, we went to their church's uh, Good Friday service. And if you've been to Good Friday services, you know approximately uh, the feel and what that service was like. Um, it, was, it was a fine service, but uh, my friend and I, who'd been studying theology and church practice and things like that, had learned something about the church's historical practice of uh, Good Friday. Uh, on Good Friday, this is the day that the church relives the death of Jesus. So this is a very sober and a very somber day for the church. Typically, we turn the lights down, we have candles and things like that, and we read through the account of the death of Jesus. We do this in our church. Uh, well, what, one of the things that the church has done through the, through the ages is, is kind of uh, guard that practice against kind of getting Easter too soon, if that makes sense. We, we want to be able to relive the somberness of uh, that, uh, what the first disciples would have uh, experienced. And so we tend to not talk about the resurrection until Easter morning because you want to have the darkness of Good Friday to uh, really appreciate the death of Jesus, and then you can really celebrate with joy on Easter. Well, with this knowledge, we had all sorts of opinions about what a Good Friday service should look like then, and, and my friend and I were scandalized because this church had the audacity to use the word hallelujah on Good Friday. 
See, that's an Easter word. Hallelujah is, is praise God. Look what God has done. But, but this is Good Friday. You're not, you're not saying hallelujah on Good Friday. See, our knowledge puffed us up. We, we thought we, we knew something. But really, we didn't know anything. There's a sense in which we didn't know anything at all. And I'm really grateful that our, our host uh, friend uh, called us out on how ridiculous we were being. He's saying, listen, this is the church celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a wonderful thing. Why are you sticking your nose up at something that is a, is a great practice? You should be worshiping God, not looking down your nose at other people. And he was exactly right. I'm really grateful that he called us out on that. See, that kind of knowledge very evidently is lacking something. And that's what Paul is pointing to here. True knowledge is shown by love. Love is introduced as a contrast to knowledge in verse 1. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And then love is brought back into the picture in verse 3 as the true outworking of true knowledge. Verse 3, but whoever loves God is known by God. And, and note that turn of phrase there. It's not that, that love shows that we know God. It shows that we are known by God. That's a powerful uh, reversal of that phrase and what we might tend to think of, uh, of what's happening there. Someone uh, was talking with me uh, this summer about the phrase, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And they said, actually, for the Christian, you could even modify that more. It's not about who you know, it's about who knows you. And Christians are those who are known by the God who created the universe. What an incredible reality. But Paul is using this to instruct us and to correct the Corinthians. They think that they are very strong. They think that they are very wise. They think that they are filled with understanding. They are filled with knowledge. But verse 2 indicates that there's a problem with their knowledge. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. In other words, their knowledge is incomplete. Paul isn't anti-intellectual. He's not anti-knowledge. He's just not convinced that their knowledge is where it should be. They're actually missing something here because true knowledge is demonstrated and worked out in love. And this is kind of just the prologue to uh, the teaching here on food sacrifice to idols. We'll, we'll get into a little bit more of his judgment on this uh, later. But uh, for now, Paul is addressing, Paul's going to turn and address the theological reason that they've given for why it's okay for them to participate in these um, food, in food sacrifice to idols. So look with me now at verses 4 through 6. Now he's able to address the issue at hand. So then, about food sacrifice to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now, verse 4 is probably, again, quoting what the Corinthians are saying. An idol is nothing at all in the world. There is no God but one. And they're absolutely right here. This is a true statement from an objective sense. They are absolutely right. There is one true God, the God who created all things, who, who called uh, Abraham to follow him and made these promises to the patriarchs. We see the story all through the people of Israel, the one true God who then sent his son, Jesus, who has become our Lord, and that we worship him. There's one true God, which means that these other so-called gods, they're really substantially nothing. They're just empty kind of things. So, so far, they're totally right. 
Now, people still worship those other gods as if they are something, and so in a subjective way, those other gods and those idols do exist, and that's what Paul is acknowledging there at the end of verse 5, but in an an objective sense, the reality is those supposed gods are are empty. There's nothing there. There's one true God. And and then for Christians, you could take it a step farther, saying for Christians, those idols and those so-called gods are both objectively and subjectively not present. They're not anything at all. And so verse 6, for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And this is a very powerful theological truth, and it's, it's really good that the Corinthians are grasping onto this and holding to it. Paul and the Corinthian Christians are in firm agreement on the truth of this point. There is one God, and there is one Lord. This is a, a really important thing, and actually this is a very important corrective for us in our day, where in a, in a pluralistic kind of context, it's more common to, to suggest that there are many gods, or at least there are many ways to the one God. I remember visiting a church on vacation once, uh, and the, the pastor was preaching on uh, a text that is talking about the exclusivity of Christ. I think it was probably John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's preaching on this passage, and what he says is, well, Jesus is the best way. There are other ways, but Jesus is probably the best way. And I determined I would never set foot in that church again, because Paul would have no part of that. These Corinthian Christians would have no part of that. They can see through how how ridiculous that kind of a statement is. No, there is one God who made all things, through whom all of us have life. There is one Lord Jesus, through whom we came into being, through whom we have life. One God, one Lord. That's a really crucial theological truth. So the Corinthians, along with Paul and all Christians ever, do need to hold to this really central truth. So the issue is not that they're wrong on this particular point of doctrine. This is the right doctrine. This is true. Their knowledge up to this point, that's good. The problem is how they're applying that knowledge to this particular situation. So we turn now from an assessment of their knowledge, which is mostly good, to now an assessment of their application, which is very poor. The Corinthians' logic goes something like this. Well, there's only one true God, right? There's only one Lord. And so idols that are not the true God, they really are nothing. And so we can participate in feasts at uh, temples that worship those idols and those other so-called gods without a problem because they really are nothing. We have this knowledge that sees through that, that sees that they're nothing, so we can participate in this kind of worshipful meal toward this other god. Whatever other people think is happening, we know that we're just eating food. Here's the problem. Verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So if people grew up going to these meals and going to these feasts as part of their worship of these other gods, some of them, even after having come to worship the true God through his son Jesus, are still going to think of those meals as being connected to the worship of those other gods because, in fact, they actually were. This was, there were strong religious overtones to these meals. And because that's what these people are thinking, even after they're Christians, they're thinking of this meal as being an idol worship kind of a meal, and that means that they are being destroyed. For them, it actually is idol worship. Now, Paul, again, affirms some of what they believe. Verse 8, 
But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So these supposedly stronger Christians in Corinth, they they rightly understand that food isn't crucial to someone's relationship with God. Food doesn't bring you nearer to God. But what they've missed is that food also doesn't bring them nearer to God, right? It's it's not an advantage to them if they do uh, take these meals, and it doesn't do them any harm if they don't take these meals. Now, more importantly, they're using their knowledge to build up their own rights and to do what they want to do, and in the process, other people are being destroyed. Look at verses 9 through 12. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Verse 8 affirmed that food is not a measure of godliness. It doesn't bring you any closer to God. We now see that food can be very destructive and bring people far away from God. Verse 10 lays out the picture of what's happening a little bit more clearly. Some of these Christians are actually going into the temples of these pagan gods and participating in these meals. And these meals would, would have been kind of a mixture of sort of a, a civic affair with, with strong religious overtones. So they would have been there for the civic part of it. They probably weren't actually worshiping these other gods, but, but there was a, a strong religious dynamic to it that was part of uh, worshiping other gods. Now, Paul's going to address that more fully in two chapters, in chapter 10, and so we'll address that when we get to it. But for now, it, the initial point that he has to make is that the exercise of their supposed rights is destroying other Christians. And because of that, it's not okay. See, humans are the kind of creatures who repeat what we see done. Right? We see someone doing something or saying something, and, and we tend to want to kind of try it out ourselves. And, and for the most part, this can be a very harmless thing. Uh, not too long ago, I got to uh, witness a group of three- to six-year-olds uh, shouting uh, consistently, hot, tot, box, for about five minutes. Hot, tot, box. It doesn't sound very exciting to you. No one's taking up the chant here this morning. But for these three- to six-year-olds, it was a fantastic thing. And it all started with one of these boys saying, hot, tot, box. And another of them heard, you know what, that sounds kind of interesting. I bet I could say that too. And they repeat it themselves. And then everyone around the table is repeating this. And then there's this chorus of hot, tot, box for five minutes at top volume. But it's mostly harmless, except for the, the nerves of the parents there. Mostly harmless, however. But there are instances when this is totally destructive. So let's say that you are at the zoo, and you're looking at these wonderful animals, and you see a zookeeper come into the cage. And you think, well, that's really interesting. Look at that. Say you're down at the John Ball Zoo, and you see the little, the little monkey exhibit toward the beginning there, and, and there's not a very high fence there, and you see the zookeeper come in the little special door and, and handing out food and stuff like that, and you think, you know what? That's pretty interesting. I think I'm going to do that. And so uh, I saw a uh, little hashtag from Twitter of jump zoo fence selfie. And so you are going to jump zoo fence selfie. You get out your camera, you hop over the fence, and you go uh, across the little uh, water there uh, to the monkeys, and you're going to take a selfie with these nice little monkeys that you think are going to be very nice and friendly to you. 
And because you do not have the training that a zookeeper does, and they are not used to you, they don't see you as someone who belongs in their territory, suddenly you are destroyed by these, turns out, very strong monkeys. And so here, right, if a, if a Christian sees you doing something that they associate with worshiping other gods, and then they decide to do the same thing, even though for them it's part of worshiping another god, you destroy them. You've taken them from worshiping the true god to worshiping idols, the things that they don't believe are actually gods, as if they are something. You have destroyed your brothers and sisters. This is not only sinning against these people then, you've now sinned against Jesus. See, the language that Paul is using here is intended to show us how bad this is. Look at verse 11. This is your brother. This is your sister. They're your family members. Not only that, but they are weak. They they need your help. Not only that, this is for someone for whom Christ died. It changes the picture, doesn't it? A family member who is weak and in need, someone that's so precious to God that he sent Jesus to die for them. That's the kind of person that your actions, because of your great knowledge, are destroying. You're destroying them. That's how bad this is. And not only are you sinning against them then, but you're sinning against Jesus himself. Now, if that's the case, if that's what's going on here, then this isn't about using your knowledge to uphold your personal rights anymore, is it? It's a total misapplication of that really good knowledge that they were hanging on to. So yes, it's technically right. There's only one true God, and that means that there are, there are no, uh, there's no substance to the idols. They're just empty kind of things. The worship of them is empty. The, the Old Testament prophets consistently make fun of the people around them for, for carving up a, a wood image and then bowing down to that thing as if it's something. They're saying, listen, you just made that. So yeah, we know those are empty. It's technically right that they aren't anything and that the one true God is the only God. But that doesn't lead to the conclusion that you can participate in feasts to those gods as if it doesn't matter. The right knowledge is wrongly applied, and the result is that people for whom Jesus died are destroyed. Here's the attitude they should take instead. Verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. See, that's the true test of knowledge, right? In verses 1 through 3, Paul suggested that true knowledge is shown in love for others. And now in verse 13, he's showing how that true knowledge should work itself out. If what I'm doing, and he's going to say later in chapter 10 that eating food, eating the meat outside of the temples is not a big deal. It's an okay thing. So he's going to say, even, even in that situation where I know I can do this and be okay, I'm not going to do it if I know it's going to destroy someone else. See, it's a total reversal. It's not about me. It's not about my rights anymore. It's about what I can do to build up and not destroy the people for whom Jesus died who have become my brothers and sisters. It's a really strong example. See, what Paul calls the church to here is a profound and life-changing love for one another. Your life is not about what you know It's not about what you think you know. It's not about your own desires. It's not about your own opinions. It's not about fighting for your rights or fighting for your freedom. There are people around you, and these people matter. Now, Paul's going to say a lot more about uh, this idle food and the way that they are uh, to relate to it uh, later on in chapter 10, but he has to start here with a, a gut check. You say you know something, but do you know enough to be able to give up your rights to love the people around you, 
See, this is a really important question because it gets at the heart of the gospel. Do we really understand what God has done for us? So we come back to the cross and realize this is what shows us a perfect example of someone setting down their rights for the good of the other. This is the Son of God. Think about that. The Son of God, Jesus himself, the Son of God, coming down, being rejected, suffering, being killed, an excruciating death on a cross. Why? For us. For the very people who rejected him and abused him and killed him. That's the example that we follow. The, the, the cross is what looms large over the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Remember at the beginning he said, I, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. The cross is what gives us the perfect example of what this looks like. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around the room a little bit here. Actually do it. No one's going to uh, think oddly of you because I'm asking you to do it. So look around, side to side, front and back. It's okay. These aren't just random people here. These are people who matter to God. They are so precious to him that he sent his son Jesus to die for them. And if they have accepted Christ, if they have put their faith in him, do you know what has happened? They become your family. This isn't just a random collection of people who gather on a Sunday. These are people that are now your brothers and sisters. You are part of this new family. And if that's true, then Paul's attitude is the only one that makes any sense. Of course we'll give up anything for the good of our brothers and sisters, people who are this precious to God. It doesn't matter what, what I want. It doesn't matter what I think. I, I'm going to do everything I can to build these people up because I love them. And what a significant mindset shift. It's to our shame that we continue to get so caught up in ourselves that we are unwilling to sacrifice for the people around us. See, our, our default mode of existence is to be centered on ourselves. This is what I know. This is what I think. This is what I want. I fight this every single day, and maybe you do too. That's the default mode of existence for me. It's about me and what I want. But this is a radical transformation of that attitude. See, the cross breaks into our self-centered lives and our me-centered existence, and it totally transforms. It's not about me at all anymore. It's all about Jesus and what he has done for me, and it's all about my whole life worshiping God. And I realize as I do that, that 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 means I have responsibility to you people. You are now my family. You are my brothers and sisters, and now we are called to live together as a community. You see, that's a wonderful thing because it breaks us out of this tiny little me-centered world, and it opens us up to something much bigger than ourselves. The church is called to be a community that that experiences such profound, self-sacrificing love for one another that the people around us see and say things like, look at how they love each other. That is incredible. Who does these kind of things? I love to see glimpses of this. Even even the the story we heard this morning from the Spain Tree is is a powerful, profound example of that. Why would these two couples use their vacation time and their own money to fly over to Spain to uh, spend some time with this little church in Zaragoza? Why would they do that? It's because they love them. And, And to hear from Marlon Mercedes how incredibly encouraged they were 
as our missionaries and as the pastors of that church to be able to, to, to have this support from their church family, so much so that, that they get to, to, to walk with them for a week. And we've already heard the testimony of the, the people in that church too. What kind of a, of, a, of a people is this that they would go out of their way? Like they said, there are other things that you could do with that time. There's other things you could do with that money. But the fact that they would do that it's an incredible testimony to this uh, brother and sister, this family love that Christians have for one another. That's a strong testimony of what it should look like. I've seen lots of other examples. I've, I've seen you guys come to each other's aid, bring uh, meals to people who are sick, help out with house projects, all sorts of other things. I want to point out one more that's happening right now in the lower level of our church. There are people downstairs. Sorry who are willing to give up a Sunday and be downstairs with our youngest ones and to put time into teaching and to do what they can to care for others because they get it. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. Of course I want to be up in the service. Of course I want to sing with everybody. Of course I want to be there. Maybe they don't want to hear the sermon. That's fair. But they're giving something up because they realize it's not about me. How can I build someone else up? How can I make an opportunity for someone else to be up in the service? How can I make an opportunity for one of these kids to hear about Jesus, to experience that love? That's people who get it. See, that's the kind of community that we're trying to build here because of the gospel. Jesus has shown us a, a powerful, profound example of what that looks like. Serving others sacrificially. When it happens, it's a beautiful thing. So what Paul is getting at here is a total reversal. See, these Corinthians think they know something. And they do. They know something very true. But they need to trade that true knowledge for its true application, which works out in love. Knowledge is a really good thing. Theological understanding are very good things. We, we have to have good doctrine or we will totally fail. We'll be worshiping a false god ourselves. Good doctrine is immensely important. It's crucial. But the test is how it plays out in our lives. So here's the charge. Trade self-promoting knowledge that destroys for other-centered love that builds up. That's the challenge for us as a church. Would you please pray with me? God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for sending him to rescue us. What an incredible example of self-sacrificing, selfless love for the good of the other. I pray that you would send your spirit among us so that we would learn that well, that we'd live it out in our lives. God, we repent of the times when that's not what we do. That's not our practice. We repent of the times when we're fighting for our rights and we don't care who it hurts. God, I pray that you would give us a deep and lasting love for the people around us, these brothers and sisters for whom Jesus himself died to rescue. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.